Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1-7. through 7. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of the God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we just thank you for all the many blessings you've given us. We just thank you that we can come here um, as one body and worship you. Um, that you are holy, um, that you are the only holy God. Uh, We thank you for your word um, and truth that it contains. Um, I just pray for Pastor Mark um, as he um, preaches and teaches us this morning, um, that it would be the Holy Spirit through him um, and not him, and that we would receive um, with humble hearts um, and open minds, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. These are the last words of David that Luke just read. Now, these are not his last words on his deathbed. Those are reserved for later on. Um, He actually speaks to his son, son Solomon. But these are his last public words that have been written down for the sake of his people. So in one sense, this is his last psalm that he wrote. They point, these words point to the sovereignty and to the grace of God throughout David's life. Remember last week we looked at how it was God who delivered David from all his enemies, and in doing that, he delivered all of his people, Israel, from his enemies. And so these words give glory to God. They speak to his sovereignty and to his grace through his, to his work, God's work, throughout David's rule and reign as the anointed king, But it also serves, these words also serve as a warning to future kings and to the dangers that they're going to face as they strive to rule over the people of God. And these are all lessons that he has learned, David has learned over his life as Israel's king, the good and the bad. And so, God's sovereignty and grace. David calls himself, rightfully so, the son of Jesse. That makes sense. His dad's name is Jesse. He's of the tribe of Judah. And making him, these titles, make him uniquely eligible then to fulfill the prophecy of Jacob generations earlier from Genesis 49.10 that says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so David 
also calls himself as raised on high, being brought from the field as a shepherd of sheep to the throne as a shepherd of Israel, God's people. And to make sure that there's no mistaking as to how this happened, he says, I am the anointed one of God. I have been raised up and I have been anointed by God. It was the Lord who chose David. It was the Lord who anointed him instead of Saul as king of Israel. And that David is the sweet psalmist of Israel points to his many writings of his psalms and the hymns of worship of God. But this line, that last line, the sweet psalmist of Israel could also be translated the beloved of Israel's protector. And if that's the correct translation, then David is saying he is the one who is deeply loved by Yahweh as a father deeply loves his firstborn son. These are all titles of David, of the anointed king. So how did David get these titles? Did he win a war? Did he kill the previous king and take the throne? Did he anoint himself as king? Well, as we've seen throughout David's life, he didn't earn these titles or receive these titles because he was sinless and perfect. I mean, the last two months that we've been working through 2 Samuel have proven, if anything, that David is far from perfect. He's not always, in every situation, making the godly choice. No, these titles were bestowed upon him by the sovereignty and the grace of of the Lord. God's sovereignty means that he is in control of all things. His hand is always involved. Nothing, absolutely nothing escapes his eyes, and everything, even David's sinful actions, are in the hands of God to drive all things to God's final desire. Now, that doesn't mean that David's actions or David's sinfulness is God's doing or God's fault. David's responsible for his own actions, both good and bad. But God uses even our sinful decisions to bring about his perfect plans. And if you go, well, that, that, how can that be? Look at the cross. Probably the most sinful act in all of the history of humanity. And God planned it and organized it and used sinful men like Pilate and Herod to kill his son so that his people may be saved for all eternity. But Pilate and Herod were still held accountable for their actions. But God used sinful actions to bring about the greatest thing ever in the history of the world, the, save, the saving of his people. God's grace is his unmerited and unearned favor, meaning that God's favor of David was not won or earned by David. He was a simple shepherd, like so many others in the nation of Israel. He wasn't a mighty warrior. He wasn't of noble birth. God chose David as his king because God is God and he can choose whomever he pleases. In other words, why did God choose David? Because God chose David. Somehow, some way, it pleased God to make David king. But his choice was not a random choice. He didn't 
go through the divine telephone book, flipping through pages and cover his eyes and point, oh, okay, here, I'll make David king. There's reasons and purpose behind why he chose David. See, David is the anointed king of Israel because the Lord anointed David as king, and it's the Lord who is speaking now through his anointed king, through David, these words of wisdom for future kings, but also for his people. You see, the, the king who rules justly, David says, or God says through David, the king who rules justly rules in the fear of God. That is something that Saul did not do, but David did do. Even in the midst of all of his sinfulness, in having an affair and sexual immorality with Bathsheba, killing and murdering her husband, all of that sinfulness was held against David, and there were mighty, huge... um, My brain just stopped working because I got away from my notes. Implications to what he did. There were major issues that then arose and people died because of what David did. But even in the midst of that, when you look through and you read through those passages and he is confronted with his sin by Nathan, he goes straight into worship of God and he bows down before God and he humbles himself before God. He fears God. The fear of God is to remember who you report to. Now, when I played college football, and if you've ever been in sports, and I'm like college-level sports, and if you were ever called into the head coach's office, 99.9% of the time, it was not for a good reason. Whenever I got called in, and it did happen a couple of times, it usually meant that I had done something wrong, and if it was bad enough, I would lose playing time or I'd be severely punished, like the time that I overslept and missed a team meeting that was early in the morning. I mean, you're in college, really? I mean, 6.30 in the morning? Are you nuts? Why would you do such a thing? And I missed it. Thought I was totally fine, but he thought it was fitting to run me into the ground for over two hours at 5 a.m. on a Saturday. I learned my lesson. I never missed another meeting because I feared and I respected my head coach because in one sense, he had the power of good or ill over me. How much more it is with God. God, David's fear of God was a respect and awe and an honor of God. For though God had chosen and blessed David, the Lord was not to be taken lightly. David couldn't throw around and say, well, God, you chose me, so you should do what I want. (laughs) And God would probably say, no, I chose you and I can unchoose you too, like I did Saul. And look what happened to him. He is the ruler. God is the ruler and the creator of the universe. He is the one who gives and takes life. He is the one who has all things in his hands. And as Hebrews tell us, tells us, God is a consuming fire. To rule justly and rightly as king is to rule with the knowledge that David is held accountable by the Lord. And David's actions will affect the entire nation of Israel. If David ruled in the fear of the Lord, then his decisions as king would be done to please and glorify the Lord. And when a ruler and leader rules justly out of the fear of the Lord, 
then God's blessings follow. You see how that, that works? God chose David. David ruled justly out of fear of God. God blesses because the ruler, the king, feared him and not man. Interestingly enough, though, David doesn't speak of God's blessing of him as a king. Let's look at what he says. He says in verse <clears throat> verse 3, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, and that men there is the people of Israel, the nation, so men and women and children, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them, the people, like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. See, David doesn't go, like, look how much God has blessed me. Look what he's done for me. He instead says, look what God has done for the people. A God-fearing king brings the blessings and hear this word of enlightenment, not like the secular enlightenment that you think, like he makes us smarter. No, he opens our eyes to the truth of who God is. His rule, the king's just rule, in the fear of the Lord opens our eyes to the greatness and the glory and the awesomeness of God. So it brings enlightenment, it brings refreshment, and it brings fruitfulness. Verse 4 says, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Now, I used to work at Village Creek Bible Camp, which is the camp that we support down in Iowa. And there was just something, as a counselor, you'd, you'd go to bed late because, you know, you don't want your kids to die and you want to make sure they're getting enough sleep because they're going to be a pain the next morning. You're exhausted. And so you sleep really well all through the night, but you got to get up early because there's a staff meeting because, again, they do it in the mornings. I don't understand why they do that. But you got this early morning staff meeting, and if you're in the, the, I call them the new cabins, the guy cabins, you have to walk a good half mile or a quarter mile in cold to get to this meeting. And there was always something. I walk out, and I walk, walk out onto the, the, the porch of the cabin, and almost always there was a deer in the, in, the, um, in the field. There's fog because it's humid. It's got this, the sun is just coming up over uh, the hills and the valley. It's this, this view, and if you've been there and you've seen it, you understand what I'm talking about. It's this beauty and this awe and this, ah, even if it is in the morning and even if it is cold, there's just something about it that, that makes you say, God is so good. The morning light, David says, it reveals all the darkness that the night has covered. What was filled with shadow is now exposed. And the morning light somehow feels pure and good and clean. If you've ever had a morning like that, where you're just like, okay, it's a new day. I can make it through. Yeah, okay. It brings refreshment. It brings this refreshing feel to it. It's, it even brings a refreshing smell to life. The cold of night 
is then chased away by the warmness of the sun. The dark is gone. The new day is beginning. The king's rule is like the sun coming up in the morning. But it's also like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now, anybody say praise Jesus this morning? Oh, man. And, and as brown as the grass is right now, you get a rain like this, especially if it continues off and on throughout the day. Within a couple days, what happens? I mean, you still have the brown, but there's a little pieces of green starting to grow, right? The grass, suddenly you have to mow again. You know, it's just, it's this, and it's beautiful because you don't have to pay for watering your grass. It's just this wonderful feeling, right? But the rain, you get the rain. You could throw fertilizer on it. You could do everything right with it, but if it doesn't have water, the grass never grows. So like the rain that causes the grass to grow, a God-fearing ruler, a God-fearing king brings fruitfulness and growth to the people. Not because the ruler is sinless, not because the people are perfectly obedient, but because God sovereignly in his grace blesses those who belong to, this, to his king. David knows that these blessings will come to the people because they have come to David and his house. You know, the house, the house that God built. David's house, David's dynasty was established by God through an everlasting covenant that is ordered and secure. Those are the words of David. He ordered my house. He made it secure through this, through this covenant. The Lord made a covenant promise to David that one of his descendants would rule and reign over Israel as its king. And it's a promise that is secure. It will never be removed. And throughout biblical history, as you read through Scripture, how many times does God say, I will remember David and so I won't destroy you? I will remember my promise to David and the words that I gave to him and so you will always have a king ruling on the, reign for, uh, on the throne forever. But why is this happening? Not because David is perfect, not because his people are perfect, but because our God always keeps his covenant promises. David's statement here, my house will stand secure, is not because he's a mighty king, but because he follows the mighty king. And he knows what God has said, and he trusts that God will follow through. David's house stands because God has caused it to stand. And David's help and desires will prosper. They will come about because God will bring them about. So when it says these words have nothing to do with David. They have nothing to do with him. But there are dangers for those kings after David. There are always what he calls worthless men, conniving men who are looking to influence and control the king on the outside seem good and right and God-fearing, but are actually worthless individuals who hate God. And these worthless men can cause a ruler to become as worthless as themselves. See, in the Bible, the Bible does not mince words. Should I say, can I say this? The Bible's not PC. It never is. It's not politically correct. 
In the Bible, a worthless man or a worthless woman is one who hates God, promotes idolatry, and seeks their own good instead of the good of the Lord. Now, the most descriptive example of this is found in 1 Samuel 2. And we've talked about these men. This is Eli's sons. They're described as worthless. They did not know the Lord. They belittled God's commands. They committed sexual immorality. And they treated the offerings of the Lord with contempt. In other words, they were of no good worth to the people of God. They were priests. They were supposed to be the mediary between the Lord and his people. And they were far from that. They were all about themselves. David describes these types of men as thorns. How many of you have been weeding lately in your garden or your rocks? How many of you have thistles that are growing? Thank you, one or two, right? I got a lot of them in my, in my yard, and I've got a lot of them in the rocks. A couple of weeks ago, I noticed some huge ones, and I mean like huge, like Somehow I missed them, and they were like up to my mid-thigh. I mean, they're massive. So I'm like, oh, I got to pull those weeds because they're really, they were in my backyard. Nobody saw them, okay? Just going to let you know. And so I attempted to pull them without gloves. Exactly. There you go, right? Yeah, I was like, yeah. You're a dummy, Mark. Yes, yes, I was. I thought, I thought, you know, because the little ones you can grab at a certain way and pull them out. Yeah, not the big ones. You can't do that with the big ones. Well, I found out as I attempted to pull them, thinking it was easy, that it really wasn't. And in fact, all I got from the effort was a handful of tiny thorns. Once I did get them pulled with gloves, once I did get them pulled, I wasn't planting on replanting them. I wasn't planning on replanting them in, the, in a garden. I tossed them in the fire pit because the only thing thistles are good for is fire kindling. Dry, of course, right? Well, the Bible, David, describes a worthless man or a woman, one who hates the Lord, is like that thistle. One cannot take in the counsel or the company of such an individual without getting thorns in your hand or getting burned yourself. A ruler, a king who confides in such individuals becomes a worthless ruler, a ruler who disobeys and hates the Lord. And the saying is true, is it not bad company corrupts? How much more so for the king of God's people? And he says, but but the man who touches them. Now, this is the weird part. Unless, I'll be honest with you. I, I had to look up a couple different commentaries. Again, I hate this one. You have a, a hard verse, and you go to look at commentaries, and they don't talk about it at all. And then you go to another one, and they don't talk about it either. It's like, oh, it's hard for you. It's, it's okay. That makes me feel better. But you've got to tell me, what does this mean? I had to really search for this. Because all of a sudden, he says, but the man who touches them. He says, you can't touch them, but the man who does touch them. The ruler and the king who confronts these people, these worthless men, he has to arm himself with iron in the shaft of a spear. In other words, the ruler, uh, a just ruler, a God-fearing ruler goes to war against such people in order to protect himself and to protect his people. And when that ruler, when that just ruler acts, the weeds and the thistles and the thorns are utterly consumed with fire. 
they're tossed in the fire pit. Never to choke out the grass that the morning rain has caused to grow and to bear fruit. See, many of David's descendants refused to follow these words. They fell prey to idol worship. They showed contempt for the offerings of God. And they became worthless themselves, bringing not fruitfulness and growth, but exile and discipline. But remember when I said these words are not about David. These are not, these are not words that describe only David, maybe I should say. Because there is one who perfectly rules justly and in the fear of the Lord, one of David's descendants. And if you've been here long enough, you know who that is. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the better David. He is the true anointed king of the Lord. All of David's rules, his faults and his good things, all of them are to point to the one who was perfect in all things. Jesus Christ, the better and perfect king. Through Christ's perfect obedience and through his perfect submission to the Father, God has established him as king just as he established David as king. David spoke these words of prophecy anticipating the one who would come and would speak a better word, the appointed heir of all things and that better word because remember david says i'm speaking the words of god god is speaking through me god is speaking through me when christ came god spoke through christ a better word the gospel message that those who believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that jesus is lord will be saved by god not by their good works For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace, what does God do? He saves us through our faith. All those things, the grace, the faith, and the salvation are all gifts of God. They are not of our doing. But they are given to us by God because he is sovereign and he is grace-filled. And he does that so that I can't stand there and say, you see, God, remember that one time I really obeyed you really, really well? I think I, think I, deserve, I deserve salvation. No. He says, no, Mark. You deserve something far worse than salvation. But I'm going to save you because you believe me. And you have my grace. Those who by the grace of God have been made the people of God, who have put their trust in King Jesus, who always rules justly and in the fear of God, they have their eyes opened, enlightened, if you would say. Their eyes are opened, their hearts and their minds are refreshed, and they live a fruitful life which brings glory to God. Worthless men, those who hate and reject the desires of God, they do not find company in the presence of our King. They do not find any company in the presence of Jesus Christ. Instead, 
Jesus deals with them justly. He goes to war against them, pulling them from the ground and casting them into the fire. The holiness of God and of his son Jesus Christ requires that all weeds, all those who are not saved by his grace through faith, will be thrown into the fires of hell for all time. We cannot avoid that. It is not popular. It does not make us feel good. But we're not here to make ourselves feel good. We're here to hear the truth of God and to hear that we are saved by God's doing, not by ours. There is no scale in heaven. And if there is, perfection is on one end and none of us meet that. None of us. And if we strive to say, boy, I sure hope I did more good than bad while I was here on earth, it's not enough. There's nothing wrong with doing good things. In fact, we're commanded to do good things, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Be a a sacrifice for others to point them to the truth of the gospel. Don't be a jerk. Love others. But that does not save us. We do it because we're saved. That's the big difference. Because there are a lot of people who hate God and do really, really good things. There are some people who kind of like God who do really good things. But they don't love God. They don't love their king. They don't bow down and submit to him. And at least striving to obey him, knowing that the only reason I am a part of your kingdom, God, is because you have saved me. The holiness of God demands that those who are not saved, those who reject the king, will be thrown into the fires of hell. For our God is a consuming fire and his wrath must be appeased. And so it is either appeased on Christ on the cross or it's appeased by us for all eternity, suffering in hell forever. One or the other. And that's it. But if you're hearing these words, there's still time. Life is short. None of us knows the day or the hour of our death. We talked about that last week. And so you need to hear these words and take them to heart. Put your faith in Christ. Trust in him as your king fall into the sovereign and grace-filled hands of the Lord and be saved from the consuming fire. Submit to and follow the only and just righteous ruler and enter into his blessing. Just as David's house stood because God had made an everlasting covenant with him, so Christ's house stands because through a a new everlasting covenant covenant by the shedding of his blood upon the cross, Jesus paid the debt and appeased the wrath of God for our sins. But he only did that for those who call him king. And so if he is your king, if you're his son or his daughter, whether you're old or you're young, man, stand firm in the truth that you are his And you will never be removed from his family. There is nothing, there is no sin that you can commit that will remove you from 
the adopted, being an adopted son or daughter of God. Nothing. Now, you could disobey him. And I've used this example. My, my children, there is nothing that's going to remove them from my love. But gosh darn it, they're going to face the consequences when they disobey, right? We, we, we think of it. The parents discipline their children. Good parents do it out of love. How much more so with God? He is our Father. He will never remove us from His family, but He will discipline, and we will face the consequences, just as David did with Bathsheba and Uriah. But we can stand firm as His people. I will always be a son of God. Not because of anything I do in and of myself, but because by His grace He has decreed it so. It's all about Him. And so I give Him the glory for God has promised, and He always keeps His promises. But the truth on the other side of the coin is the same, because He always keeps His promises if He is not your King. If you examine your heart and your life and you find that you were bowing down to anything or anyone other than God, and you want and you're not wanting to give Him every part of your life, to be King of all things, not just you know, for, from 10.30 to 11.30 on a Sunday morning. But every moment of your life, striving to, grow, striving to grow closer to Him, if you do not see that and you realize He is not my King, this is my King, or I am my own King, then repent and be saved. Repent of your sin. Be saved by Him, not by your own merits, but by His by Jesus Christ, the King, who rules justly and he blesses those who belong to him. Now, don't hear that blessing and think all of a sudden you're going to be able to pay all your bills and you're not going to have any death in your life and you're not going to be sick and nothing bad is ever going to happen. If you just have enough faith, that's a false gospel called the prosperity gospel and it leads people to hell. The blessing that God gives us is himself. The blessing that he gives us is opening our eyes to the glory of who he is. The blessing that he gives us is a peace that no matter what circumstance comes into our life, that we can stand firm and say, I have no control over this, but I know the one who does. And good or bad, he is my king. And I trust him. And should my life be taken, I will still love him because he is still good. That's how he blesses his people. We're about to go to the table, the communion table. We take this seriously. And hearing these words, God knows our hearts. God knows if we are his child or if we are not. We do not. I, I, I have an idea when I meet someone, but I, I don't know their hearts clearly. I can make a judgment, but, but even if I've, been in, in, in peop, I've known people and I've been in churches where the most godly acting person in the world I find out is actually not a believer. It can happen. Masks are prevalent throughout all of the church. God sees our hearts, though. 
And so what we're asking is though, though we don't stand there and, you know, do a little salvation detector on you before you go up to the table, know that God knows your heart. And so if you are a child of God, you walk up with confidence knowing that God knows me and he knows that I am his son, that I am his daughter. And I will take this cup and this bread and I will take it seriously, but I will take it with joy. And the Bible tells us if you take this wrongly, if you belittle this, and you, or you, you take it because you want to look good to the people around you, God sees our hearts and he will judge us. If not now, he will judge us in the future. And so take this seriously. If you are a child of God, you are more than welcome to come to the table. If you have unrepentant sin or if you are an unbeliever, we ask that you refrain. No one will look down upon you. No one will and if they do, come and talk to me, and the elders and I will pull them aside, and we'll have a long conversation with them, pointing out all their sins. So take this seriously. And so when you are ready, you can come to the table, take the cup, take the bread, come back to your seat. We'll sit down together as a people of God, as a family. And we will take this cup of Christ's blood. We will take the bread of his body and remember our king and what he did so that we might be blessed by him as his people. So when you are ready, come to the table.